Kevin Pruitt with another episode of Rising Tide Startups. And my guest today is Pete Williams. Pete, thanks for joining us today. I appreciate being here. It's uh, going to be a lot of fun. I think this is maybe the uh, second time and not, not very long that I've, we've actually been on opposite sides of the globe as, oh. as we're talking here. So uh, it's, it's good to touch yeah. base with somebody from, from the far side of the planet. But uh, Pete, tell us a little bit. Give us your short bio. Sure. Well, it's an interesting one, I guess, in terms of it's always a strange question to answer. So my day-to-day focus is a a telecommunications company here in Australia. So we have three or four businesses in the group and we sell uh, phone systems, install them. We've got a couple of e-commerce businesses in that group too, selling headsets. So that's my day-to-day kind of focus. Uh, I'm doing a day a week with Deakin University, which is one of the top 2% universities in the world. I'm Mm -hmm. a professor of practice there, so helping sort of bridge the gap between traditional university education with the, the gray-haired, bearded lecturers sure. who haven't been in the real world and then obviously myself who's very much a practitioner. So I'm kind of helping kind of build that real-world um, education to the university degree too, which has uh, been a lot of fun this year. So yeah, that's sort I of think you're, two you're big things. here to the gray, gray-bearded podcast which you're shifting to. So. Um, mate, <laughs> no, not you. I was talking about through. me. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm sorry. coming through here. Don't worry about that. <laughs> Go ahead. I, I cut you off there. So, yeah, that's sort of the, the, the focus really is, you know, I'm in the trenches um, running businesses with staff and customers and headaches and successes and everything in between. So that's what keeps me busy every day. Lifelong Australian? Yep, absolutely. Born and bred. Lived in Florida for a while. I um, studied university and then when I finished uni, I uh, had the opportunity to go and work in the US. Mm-hmm. So I uh, worked with Athletes Foot during my um, my university days and then when I finished, the plan was to go and work at different athletes' foot stores across the country. So start in uh, Florida and work my way back to LA and then head home. But um, you know, 21 year old with an Australian accent, accent lands in South Beach. Yeah, didn't really want to leave, so spent the whole time just working down there in Sawgrass and having a good time in South Beach. I my uh, did a little quick segue here. My my son-in-law is actually from the UK and and. Uh, Young guy, good-looking guy, and but the accent here is is just beloved. I mean, he uh, <laughs> he he is really readily accepted, and I'm sure you were as well in Florida. Yeah, absolutely. So one thing you touched on that uh, I did a little research on you, did a little YouTube stalking and stuff like that. Good stuff. But uh, one thing that you mentioned that you just kind of passed over, and I, I want to drill down just a little bit is is your work at Deakin University, and yep. did you mention in a in a in a, either a podcast or a, just a YouTube interview that you're actually helping students kind of kind of match through maybe internships or, or something yeah. similar to that. Can you touch on that just a little bit? Yeah, the, the project I'm working on, I find really interesting. So Deakin about four years ago started a law clinic, which is I think, you know, getting more and more common with universities across the globe where students in their final year of their law degree actually go and work um, in, a, in the Deakin Law Clinic. And, you know, family law, commercial law, whole bunch of stuff. People come in and get pro bono work done. Right. And the students actually are fundamentally the, the lawyers. They're working under a proper lawyer. Sure. So it's all Oversight, you know, yeah. board. Right. But they actually get that real world experience. And Deacon um, wanted to do something very similar in a business clinic sense. So um, I was reaching out to the dean and the head of the, the business school recently for uh, some endorsements for my new book that's coming mm-hmm. out. And I sort of walked in there, hadn't spoken to him for a while. 
um, and asked for the endorsement. And somehow about 20 minutes later, I walked out with this job, which was like, hang on, <laughs> that happened. And so the project is basically trying to create this business clinic for students and local companies uh, in Australia so the idea will be a business can come in whether they're a startup a mature company and get a health check and the health check will be run by students so there'll be three or four students maybe someone from an accounting master or major um, IT marketing management there'll be a good collective right. group of students and they'll walk the business through that health check and the health check will give them you know an idea of where they are in all the different areas of their business it acts as a capstone for the students. So it's a great way for them to get real-world experience and apply what they've learned in the classroom actually in a business in the real-world sense. That's mm, a, what a super great exciting. Idea. That's my, my major project, which is awesome. I, I think what the example that you gave was was um, a guy was was struggling with a specific issue in business. And maybe yep. you were talking about matching up a student that might work you know, pro bono to help out just – because it would be might be part of their coursework as well. So I think that was maybe the example that that, that yeah. you talked about on that. We're we're swinging back and forth of the best way to do this, and we're we're still not completely sure. That one of the ideas was make it a you know a break fix model where you know a business business that they think is broken can come in and go, I've got this specific problem, right? Help me work on it, and then the students will actually just try and fix that problem. The issue we faced was scale, and this mm -hmm. is the same for any business, whether you sure. actually are a startup yourself. Scale is a massive issue for everybody. Right. And we're trying to foreshadow that and thinking, well, what happens if one semester we get a bunch of students who are accounting students who want to do this program, but the problems we get through the door are all marketing problems. That won't really work for anybody and it's not scalable. Mm -hmm. So the concept we've got is we're going to switch up to this health check that can be scalable. It'll be the same for every business they go through it. Students get that holistic view and it's not really a break-fix model. So it makes it a, a little bit easier for everyone and be more of a, that holistic review of the, the business and right. of their coursework across right. their entire you know commerce or business degree. Yeah, that make, that makes perfect sense, and I I appreciate you you taking the time to kind of unpack that a little bit for us. And I didn't I don't want to chase that too far, but it was it was just such a great uh, I thought awesome. it was such a great idea. I mean, so, yeah, well, so thank you for I taking was, the time. Yeah, I, I was an undergraduate at Deakin, so I did my degree at the same mm -hmm. university fifteen years ago now. So. And what I found with my degree is it was all classroom based. Like right. it wasn't, there was none of this interaction with the real world. There was no like, application sort of learning. It was very much just like, you know, here's a textbook, here's a theory, here's the case study from 20 years ago. Right. And there wasn't really any world, real world tangible, you know, um, learning. Whereas the, the university is shifting. I think they are across the globe shifting a lot, which is super exciting because that's what I'm like. I'm in the trenches, I'm doing the yep. real world stuff, yep. and that's what I'm excited to see students do. And the, the just the typical internship model, you know, across the globe. I mean, it, yeah. businesses don't know what to do with interns. Interns don't stay long <laughs> enough to really, you know, they, they're not they're not allowed to do really anything other than just kind of sit there and watch me do my work type thing or or do filing or something yeah. really mundane, you know. So I, I think that idea is great. But so there's there's also a couple other things I want to touch on, and and uh, one is a is a we're going to take a huge segue here. We're going to talk about how you sold Yankee Stadium, ah, the Yankee well, the Stadium Australian, of the, the Australian equivalent yes. of Yankee Stadium. Yeah, well, it actually ties back to the the Florida story I was telling you earlier. Funnily enough, so when I um, finished uni, I went to Florida and as you do, met a girl and all that sort of stuff and was planning to go back to Australia, get my stuff sorted, get a visa and move back to New York, which is where she was originally from. So I actually took a job at another athlete's foot store that had just start, started up. So it was a bit of a startup in its own right, a new store. 
And it was, you know, in a new mall, so it was not a lot of foot traffic going through. It wasn't overly busy. So I'd spend half my day just sitting behind the counter reading books. Sure. And I was reading the story of The One Minute Millionaire, which is a book by Robert Allen and Mark Victor Hansen. I think it's a fantastic book. It's, yeah, 15 years old now. And almost in like a throwaway paragraph, in one section of the book, it tells the story really briefly of a guy who in the 80s bought all the timber that was part of the Brooklyn Bridge walkway. Mm. And he made little certificates up with the history of the Brooklyn Bridge, an inch by inch square of the uh, the timber. And rumor has it he made a couple of million dollars selling these little certificates. So I started thinking, all right, how can I do that here in Australia? What's what national treasure can I take and, and exactly, break into tiny how, bits? That's exactly right. And the Melbourne Cricket Ground, which is our hundred thousand seat stadium, wow. it's you know it's really famous here in Australia and right around the world to a certain extent. That was getting a bit of a redevelopment um, happening, and one of the, the stands had just been demolished. And I remember going to see Australian Rules footy with my dad there many, many times, and the seating was horrible. It was wooden plank seating. It was from you know the <laughs> '60s, hence the renovation. Yeah. So was able to make a few phone calls and track down the wrecking company that was doing that demolition. And what we found was they had yeah, the timber sitting there in the back of the warehouse. But they also had um, some carpet, which sounds really bizarre. Yet the part of the stadium next to the stand that got pulled down is a really famous Melbourne Cricket Club. It's like a really prestigious section of the stadium that it's like a 40-year like waiting list to become a member. And if you become a wow. member, you can get to go any event inside the stadium. And it's quite famous. And the carpet in the members' dining room was really ugly, but it had the actual crest of the, the club on there. So when the stadium got pulled down, the, the dining room got um, pulled apart as well. And they're like, oh, yeah, we've also got some of this carpet lying there if you want that. You know, this is a wrecking company. They had no perceived value there. Like done, bang, over the phone, <laughs> bought it, had to borrow a friend's credit card because I was maxed out after my Florida trip. <laughs> Those drinks in South Beach, expensive. <laughs> and... Um, made frames up with a history of the um, photo of the MCG, a piece mm -hmm. of this carpet, a plaque outlining the history of the MCG, and wrote a press release. 21-year-old sells the MCG for under $500. And that went massive in Australian media, went all over the media. And it was exciting, got you know, channels like major news articles, yeah. print magazines, uh, and was a massive success, and that was kind of a, my first big project, which was a a lot of fun, and led to my first book as well, which was nice. So, so you you've obviously had kind of an entrepreneurial bent to you yeah. from an early age. I mean, can you even trace that back further? Say, can you know, teen years or you know, all that. Yeah, I mum loves telling this story of when I was three. I um, wrote, I drew arrows down the hallway um, as a three year old to do silly things and. Mum was really good before yelling at me and telling me off. She sort of apparently, I don't remember this, this is how she tells the story. So she probably did yell at me but trying to save face when she retells the story. But apparently she um, asked me, like, what are these arrows for? And my response was, so you can find me in my office when I'm doing work. This is at three years old apparently. <laughs> wow. Uh, but, you know, fast forward a few years, you know, registered my first business when I was 17, um, used to run trading card swap meets at the local caravan park over summer holidays and I've always sort of been that way. I don't know where it is. You know, mum was a math teacher and dad worked in logistics. So it wasn't mm. really a, the family trait per se. My grandparents ran businesses, mm -hmm. but uh, it wasn't definitely a, a direct, um, you know. Hey, maybe it skips a generation, you know. Possibly. <laughs> it, was in the, it was in the DNA somewhere. So were the trading cards, were they like Australian rules? 
football players? Are they rugby NBA, players? Or are they Dominic Wilkins. US, oh, U.S. Alonzo, oh, mate, you know, Jordan, Dominic Wilkins, you know, the Alonzo Mornings, you know, Shaq, Barkley. It was all about the NBA basketball, mate. That was, oh, okay. that was what we lived. Absolutely. So it was, uh, was that about the time, was it Andrew Gage that was playing over in the yep. States as well? So Yeah, Andrew Gage was playing for San Antonio. Shane Heal, who's a bit of a family friend of ours, was playing for Minnesota. Uh, Luke Longley, obviously, with oh, yeah, the Bulls. Oh, yeah, I forgot that Luke Longley, right. Yeah, and now just, you know, Ben Simmons has gone full circle and Rookie of the Year, which is yep. exciting. So, um, yeah, it's really cool to see some Aussies doing some massive things. I had no idea basketball. Ben Simmons had an Australian background. Yeah, well, he's, he's lived in the U.S. for years, went to high school there, but his dad um, played basketball in Australia and his mum's Australian. So, okay. yeah, absolutely. There's wow. the bloodline there and we sing it proudly here in Australia. It's all over the news everywhere. <laughs> it's all right. He's we, a we great take player. everything we can. Yeah, he's a great absolutely. player. Well, I, I um, normally we're talking about like one business, but your 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 business, I guess, portfolio is so diverse that <laughs> it's it's really hard to drill down. I mean, um, some of the awards that I I have seen that you've won. Um, I mean, tell us about the Ernst and Young Award and the and the the award you received in Tunisia. Um, yeah, <laughs> another <laughs> moniker other than that you sold the Yankee Stadium Australia is that you're Australia's Richard Branson. I read somewhere that was that was actually kind of more off the back of the MCG venture. He was just launching Virgin Airways mm -hmm. in Australia at the time, so I think the media at the time were kind of like, "Oh yeah, Richard's everywhere. Let's Certainly call him Richard." So hey, I'll take it. Though. I was going to say absolutely, I'll definitely take absolutely. it. Absolutely. So yeah, the, those awards are more around the telco group. You know, mm -hmm. we started that business about 12, 13 years ago, so a couple of years after the living in Florida came back and uh, got two business partners and started the Telco Group. And we started that business really in an interesting way. You know, With the MCG project, it was a very leveraged business in that I had the carpet, I had that sitting at a framers, and although we had a limited amount of carpet, I wasn't gonna, didn't have the cash flow to actually make all the frames up. Right. So the business model was I'd make the sale, you know, People would call up and go, or send the fax through in those days, get the yeah. order by fax or a phone call, take the order, uh, and then literally call the framer and go, Dave, we've got another order. Can you please make up frame number 123 and 124? <laughs> He'd make the frame. He'd call me back and say, yep, they're ready to go. I'd call the courier. They'd go and ship it. So the business was very leveraged. These hands didn't get dirty at all. You know, I think... The worst thing these hands have ever had is a paper cut. It's almost you know? like, like drop shipping or something. I mean, it really absolutely, is. Yeah. Absolutely. So when we started the telco business, it was a very similar model. You know, myself and my two business partners, we're not phone techs. We don't have that background. Mm -hmm. So we started the business because we found there was a, a need and a gap in the market. You know, at the time, you know, the office manager or the receptionist who was given the task to go and, you know, get three quotes for a new phone system. Right was going to Google, they were going online, they stopped going to Yellow Pages and all those sort of older places. And we realized that in that space, no one was doing it well. So we started the business, my two business partners, were involved in telco but not technicians. Mm -hmm. So we started the business and the whole idea was, the business model was sales and marketing. We were a sales and marketing company that just happened to sell phone systems. So Could be selling anything. Out, literally, yeah, absolutely. True, yeah. So it was generating the lead, making the sale, and then upon that sale being made, we'd then go and order the, the phone system kit to match the requirements of the customer, and then we'd actually outsource the installation. So we'd literally go to almost competitors, if you yeah, like, yeah. and say, hey, we've got this client, can you go and install it for us? And that was great, they'd go off and, and do the installation for us, and the business model got proved, we could get generate leads, we could make sales. Right. But after about oh, a couple of years in the business, what happened is we realized that, hang on, 
none of these customers have come back to buy from us again. And we had mm. that scaling issue that I touched on earlier. Mm-hmm. And that you know, we couldn't scale the business right. because there was no repeat, there was no that foundation. So we sat down one day and started thinking, okay, what is it that, that drives profit in our business? What are the, the elements that were driving profit? And what were the elements that drive profit in all business that we're not touching on? Where aren't we you know, leveraging our success? And one of the big things is we didn't have transactions or repeat transactions with our customers. People weren't coming back and buying from us because, you know, let me ask you, if you bought a phone system from someone and then a technician came in, they held your hand, they installed it for you, they trained you, they gave all that sort of personal uh, experience right. to you, when you had a problem or wanted to buy more, who were you going to call? The people who just basically took your order sure. or the people who actually installed it and gave you service? It's a bit of a double-edged so, sword too because, I mean, you actually may have wanted them to call the, the installers if there was an issue. So you didn't have to yeah. deal with the back-end tech problems as well. So, yeah. Spot on. Yeah. Absolutely. It was an interesting one for us. So then we started realizing, hang on, this, this can't be sustainable in terms of from a growth perspective. Right. We were missing out on a lot of repeat transactions. So we sat down and kind of went, okay, there's, there was really seven things that drove profit in any business. We were really good at a few of them. We were great at getting suspects and leads. We were great at getting prospects and the people who kind of went, yeah, I'm actually ready to get a quote. And we were great at converting them. So we are really good at the, you know, the front three of those seven areas, mm-hmm. but the back of them, at the back end, we were kind of not really worrying about. We were a bit more ignorant than anything. So when we sort of started to think, okay, let's work out and look at across these entire seven elements, right. that's when the business really picked up and we got some massive growth and some of those awards you spoke about were um, were, were valid and, and well received. So that's a that's a perfect segue into the next systems or the, or the next segment, I guess, not the next system, but you mentioned kind of the seven like levers of business that mm. you're just in passing there. So do you want to, you want to talk about that a little bit because that, that actually sure. relates directly to your book, correctly? I mean, correctly, yeah, actually, funnily yeah. enough, it does. Yeah. So it's interesting. I think there's, there's two elements here is there's these seven areas of business. And I think when most people hear them, they're going to be like, yeah, okay, there's nothing new there. But something that we discovered as we started doing the math, it was pretty impressive. So the seven areas are, you know, you've got your suspects. These are the people who come to your website, walk into your store, whatever it might be. They're sort of just, they're, they're, they're not qualified, but they're just sort of in your world. Mm-hmm. The next level down is your prospects. What percentage of your suspects actually put up their hand and say, yes, I am interested. I want to quote. I'm going to download your free report. Right. I'm going to trial your SaaS and do a 14-day free trial. Mm-hmm. They've basically put up their hand and say, yes, I'm qualified and I'm interested. Then you move on to the third level, which is conversions. What percentage of those prospects, those interested parties, actually become customers? Right. Fourth, you've got average item price. What is the average price of the items mm-hmm. you sell across your store, your online business, your e-comp store, whatever it might be? Average um, items per transaction. How many items are you actually selling these people? Do you know, on average, how many items people buy from you every single time they transact? Mm-hmm. Do they buy the pair of running shoes and the shoe cleaner or a pair of right. socks? Do they buy the bike with the helmet? Do they buy the iPhone and the cover? You know, what are the actual additional items, upsells, cross-sells you are making to your customers? You've then got your transactions, which I spoke about before, getting mm-hmm. people to come back again and again and again. Mm-hmm. And finally, the last thing that really drives the, any profit in any business is your margins. How much of that overall revenue do you actually keep? So there's just the suspects, prospects, conversions, average item price, average items per sale, transactions and margins. 
nothing overly revolutionary there really when you break it down. It was for us at the time because we kind of had our blinders on and we were ignoring a whole bunch of stuff in our business. Mm -hmm. And we were able to sit down and go, okay, oh, these are the areas we're doing and we were able to start tracking some numbers. But the cool thing was is that we started thinking, okay, how do we double our business? How do we grow it? And obviously one way is to double your suspects, get twice as many suspects coming through right. and it will all kind of you know filter down and you'll hopefully double your business. That's really hard. Mm -hmm. like doubling your suspects, doubling anything is really, really hard. So we started thinking, okay, my mum's a math teacher. Let's get the whiteboard out and start figuring out how can we play with this that's going to be more achievable and sustainable. And what we figured out was that if we just increased each of those seven areas by just 10%, if we just got 10% wins, the actual compound effect would be that our business would actually double. So what we found is, okay, well, we can go from 1,000 web visitors a month to 1,100. It's a 10% increase. That's just a small AdWords tweak, a little bit of SEO, right. nothing too crazy. We, if we could improve our conversions from 20% to 22%, if we were able to get you know, you know, our average items per sale of, you know, 1.1 to 1.21, you know, like mm. small wins. Some of these things are very, very easy to do. What we found was that actually doubled our business. And we went, all right, well, let's go through this again. Let's increase our website traffic from 1,100 to, you know, 1,210. Like mm -hmm. it's right. very, very easy to do. And what we found is when we worked on our business, we'd spend, you know, half a day a week going, okay, we're going to work on our business. We're not going to talk to customers. We're not going to be doing the the tech work of the business, so to speak, the actual sales and, and, and side of things, we're gonna work on it. Okay, well, this week we're gonna work on increasing our suspects. What can we do to increase our suspects by 10%? Following week, we're gonna work on our prospects by 10%. And we were amazed at some of the stuff we were able to do to increase these things, you know. Small AdWords campaign gave us a boost of 10%. Um, you know, putting a Google local listing gave us a boost of 10% for traffic. You know, when it came to conversions, you know, split testing our order buttons on our e-commerce stores mm -hmm. from red to green or the headlight on our sales pages, you know, some of that sort of stuff right. boosted versions by 10%. Putting testimonials in our proposal took us two hours one week, 10% boost because it's only small wins we're going for. We're not trying to hit it out of the park. We're not trying to get 10,000 new email addresses in seven days and all that sort of yep. crazy shenanigans we see online. It was sustainable growth and that element of it was what made a difference in our business. It wasn't really knowing the seven levers as a framework. It was actually going 10% wins. What used to feel like a failure is actually a massive success. Mm -hmm. You know, we used to feel down that, oh, you know, we only got a 7% boost this week. No, oh, that's nowhere near doubling our business. Well, actually, hang on, that's a great solution. It's pretty close to 10%. Move on to the next lever and keep using the compound effect. And that, that mindset shift that we don't have to hit home runs made a massive difference in our business. And once we kind of worked out how to leverage that, how to implement that, how to work through that with a framework and a system, everything changed for us. Let, let me ask you a question. My, my background's in economics. So yeah. there's, a, there's a principle in economics that called the, like the law of diminishing returns. So yeah. at, at some point in time, if you, if, you're just, if you just look at the model on its surface, okay, Absolutely. just increase it 10%, 10%, 10%. At some point in time, did you notice over time that the quality of those leads decreased um, or the conversion rate went down a little bit? You know, so you, you're, you're I love the term suspect. I mean, in the U.S. context, the only time we use the word suspect <laughs> is to deal with somebody needs to be incarcerated. So, yeah. But 
do you understand kind of what I'm what Absolutely, I'm asking? Yeah, and about, I, I'd so. agree. I think there's a few things around that. I'm really glad you brought that because not many people do. So it's, it's really awesome. So there's a few things. Yeah, like clearly you cannot keep dropping your margins or increasing your margins by ten percent. That's just physically sure. impossible. There's going to there's going to be a cap at some point. Yeah, of course. And there's going to be a cap of how long and how much you can increase your prices. You can't keep increasing it by ten percent every seven weeks. That's just, again not yeah. sustainable. So I think. The, the good thing is, yeah, like suspects, conversions, mm -hmm. prospects, you can have some massive wins. And, yeah, can you keep doing this year on year? Well, probably not in certain areas. Yeah. You know, certain things are going to max out. You're going to have that diminishing returns. So, yeah, it doesn't apply for the next 10 years, but I'm guessing for most businesses and every business that I've worked with and talked to, they get a, a series of 10% wins just by actually identifying and measuring where they're at right now. Sure. Is because... You know, we've got some horror stories where we've done stuff like, you know, paused our AdWords campaign for a holiday weekend, came back on the Monday and forgot to turn it back on for three weeks. Mm. You know, we had times where a credit card um, expiry date changed and we forgot to renew our email tool. And wow. the email sequences that were going out to encourage people to come back and buy from us again, our transactions, uh, repeat transactions, didn't happen for a while. And the reminder and email went to your spam. Folder. All that stuff. And like, <laughs> right. As much as you see, like, oh, that wouldn't happen to me, there's not been a single business that I've seen go through this process of actually identifying and defining what the seven levers are for mm -hmm. them, taking time to measure, not finding 10% wins just yep. because they thought something was working. They thought the staff was asking, would you like fries with that? But in fact, they got lazy. Wow. Just because it's part of your process, it doesn't mean it actually happens. Yeah. So that's the first thing. And then I think, again, cycling two, three times this through this framework, mm -hmm. you're going to be able to find wins all the way through the seven levers yep. at least two or three times. So that's effectively gone, well, you're going to double it once when you just define and identify and measure. Mm -hmm. Then you might double it a second, third, and fourth time as you actually go through the framework. Well, that's basically you've forexed your business yeah. very, very easily in a matter of you know three or four months. Maybe yeah. more. I mean, so another thing... I agree. Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, Please I agree continue. with that. So there is a point where the line stops However, for most businesses, when they are starting up, they might have done an MVP, they might have done a lean startup. Right, sure. Where do I go next? And this framework is that next level for them. It may not be the thing you use for the next 20 years, but it's definitely going to take you from that startup, that lean startup, that MVP, to a sustainable business growth model. Right. I mean, and as you were talking, I'm thinking, you know, we tend to look at things in a real static nature that says, okay, you know the uh, the the margin is is say twenty percent on a on a product yeah. you're selling right now, but that's because you're only buying five hundred a month. If you're buying five thousand a month, the margin you know the, the cost of of the of the product goes down twenty five percent. You know, so you you've shifted it in both way in both directions. So Absolutely. if the cost of goods sold goes down, if the if the cost of shipping goes down, the you know, the, the cost of just your back office goes down because of just, you Absolutely. know, the economy of scale. I mean, then you're, you've sure. certainly made up, you know, ground. But, yeah, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to unpack that because, um, I mean, it, it seems so simple. You know, that when you outline those things, they sent kind of the first three, maybe the kind of the, the sales funnel. But then yeah. the last four kind of like, okay, that this is kind of like the production side of things. That's the actual, yeah. the, the goods, the cost of them, how many you're selling. Kind of the quantit the quality or the quantitative measure, you know, of your yeah. of your business on the back end. But um, and even if I mean, as you were unpacking this, I'd, I'd, I want to I'd actually want to listen to you talk more than me. But this is a, a really interesting point that you brought out was 
if you if you increase the number of prospects coming in it mm-hmm. has a knock-on effect to virtually everything in that Absolutely. in that whole process so yeah and if you're if you're just increasing the back end and ignoring the front end you've got a real problem yeah, absolutely. You know, so. I think you said it right when you said it's 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 overly simple. And I think that's a problem with this is that people go, oh, it's too simple. And they just don't embrace it as much. They, they go, yeah, I know that. But if I asked you and said, you know, okay, what is your average item price in your store? What is your average items per sale? Most people don't can't actually answer that. Exactly. And probably don't even know how to go and find the answer to that. Yep. And well, okay, so the concept's simple, but if you don't know it, and these are the seven drivers of profit, no matter what business you are, whether you're an accountant, a landscaper, a butcher, a bike store, a telco business, a consultant, an e-com store, these seven levers apply. It's a basic fact of business that these are the seven things yep. that drive profit in any business. Yep. So at least take an hour to sit down, define them for your business, and ideally take another hour and try and figure out what the numbers are for you. Figure out where you are today because you will find and you'll be amazed at some 10% wins you'll get purely with those two steps. Now, there's obviously more right. to actually implementing it and running it and growing your business with it, yet there are two things you can do today to really open your eyes of actually how powerful this is. Don't dismiss it as like, oh, yep, I've, I know that roughly theoretically. Actually take time because I'm, you'll be surprised at what I can do in your business. Yeah, and I uh, and if – if I in any way implied that uh, because it's simple, I mean everybody should you know knows this already. That that's that may be true, but how few people actually take action? And I mean, you know, ninety the ninety nine percent of the world is out there going, well, it, it does, it's not going to work, you know, because they're not even <laughs> going to try it, you know. But it well, think- it has a simple formula, but most people don't do it. So like you mm. like you mentioned, so go ahead. Mm. I was going to say, I think the interesting thing that I get and I've heard a lot about this is that. So many business owners, they understand the difference of working in their business and on their business, yet when they sit down to work on their business, they don't know what to actually do and what to work on. You know, they might might love the idea of growth hacking. Oh, I want to be a growth hacker. Well, what do you actually growth hack? (laughs) Well, you growth hack these seven things. So using this as your roadmap and as your almost your strategy of, okay, I'm going to sit down and work on my business. Well, what do you work on? Use these seven levers as your guideposts for working on things. When I'm actually going to work on my business, I'm going to do this. I'm going to work on this lever. I'm going to work on this lever the next week. And then the following lever the following week. And make it your guidepost for what to work on. Yep. It can be as simple as that and give you that direction because so many business owners I hear from have no direction. They feel like they're lost. Right. They understand they need to work on their business, but they don't have that roadmap of what to actually work yep. on. And this can be that for them, which is... um Super exciting as well. And they're pretty overwhelmed. I mean, they're just in, oh, yeah. in working in their business. They're just pretty overwhelmed. I mean, you know, I love that you, you touched on that point. It's kind of like, uh, you know, the E-Myth and Tim Ferriss had a baby. You know, you yeah. just need to mention this nice nice amalgam of these, these two ideas. So yeah. um, normally on our, our podcast, we're asking like business owners, what are their two you know, biggest pain points that they experience. But I'd like to tweak that question a little bit for you. So because, you know, you have had such a diverse experience and, and, you know, diverse um, opportunity to work in in multiple businesses. And and I'm sure you have pain points in your, in your current businesses, but what, how would you, or what would you identify as 
the two major pain points that you think most startups deal with? Oh, good question. And I, I threw you a curve here. I, I understand that. So, you know, it's good. I, I think I'm going to answer the part part one of that with what we just spoke about. I think the, one of the biggest pain points for a lot of business owners is that they're reactive. Is yeah. that they open their doors, they walk in, they're overwhelmed. They're really good at the tools. Like I know how to, you know, change a tire and fix a gasket and right. be on the tools as a mechanic. Yet I don't know how to grow my business because I was never taught that. Uh, and I don't have a roadmap or a blueprint of what to work on. So I think that's a massive issue. Yep. Um, I also think staffing, it really, like that with every business, as you grow, staffing is a massive one. You know, that becomes generally for most businesses as they scale, the biggest, um, I was going to say expense um, mm-hmm. on your P&L, but it shouldn't be treated as an expense. When you use language like expense, that's when you start, you know, misaligning and mismanaging your team because they are an investment. Sure. Like one of my favorite quotes about staff and team is, well, what happens if you train them and they leave? What happens if you, if you don't train them and they stay? (laughs) That's a, that's a great. So it's around, you know, making sure you continually invest in your team because they're the ones who are going to give you scale. You know, you can work on your business as much as you can, but they're the ones who's going to be asking, would you like fries with that? Yep. They're the ones who are going to be actually probably implementing some of the marketing tactics for you to generate the leads. They're going to be the ones negotiating with your suppliers. So I think staff is a, a big one as well. And giving your staff direction and a framework to work within is, is super helpful as well. That is, that, those are those are two really important. And actually, you know, in the, the number of podcasts we've done, I mean, I don't know that we've actually talked about either of those of those pain points. I don't know that they've been brought up, but but they are so um, cogent to virtually the whole panorama of yeah. of you know startup business startups that, that they're certainly going to face that. So as we as we kind of shift to kind of the the latter stages of the interview, I, I'd like to just drill down a little more and and just kind of get inside your head a little bit and and uh, see what's going on in there. But uh, is there is there one person? online that you would say really inspires you and and if you identify that person you know kind of tell us why um what comes to mind is rich roll like rich is a a friend of mine we met about five years ago he's done a really good job he's a podcaster he's Mm -hmm. an author he's living his passion you know and he's really delivering amazing content to his audience and really cares about his audience so from a an online personal brand, seeing someone when they weren't sure what they were going to do with their business after they left their, 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 their comfy job, he'd just written his book, he was struggling to figure out how's he going to make a living, what's he going to do, uh, and to see him kind of scale and grow and find himself in that respect has been awesome to see. So that I respect him in terms of his work ethic, his focus, his care, that sort of stuff as well yeah. I found really, really good. So, just to kind of kind of follow up with that a little bit, is there is there a, a not a not a person online, but is there a, is there a quote that is kind of driving you? Is there a quote that you look every day, you kind of repeat, tape beside your computer? My my favorite quote is "Beware of the dream takers." What's the, what's the source of that? I have absolutely no idea. Then maybe you can keep it. I think I might. <laughs> It's no, going to be on a T-shirt next week. I used to sign when my first book came out ten years ago, which was the, the story of selling the MCG that we touched on earlier. That's how I signed the books, and I, I can't remember at the time if I actually made that up or whether I read it somewhere. So I can't 
definitive say either way. But I remember that's what I used to sign all my books with because I believe it. I think so many people, they they do believe the dream takers and that yeah. they, you know, they want to grow their business and they hear they can't do it and everything like that. And, you know, just don't believe them. Just have a crack and, and have a go and be smart about it. So, yeah. So if you could if you could step back into kind of the way back time machine and, and go back and tell the early stage Pete Williams, give him, give him one piece of advice that would be Ooh. really good for you and maybe good for our listeners. What do you think that would be? That you wish you would have known then and you would have done? I'm going to say make less mistakes. And it's hard to kind of give that advice specifically. But one of the things I think, I read this recently in Keith Cunningham's um, new book. Um, I think it's called something something stupid. I can't remember what the title of the book is, but it's got the word stupid in it. Hmm. Uh, it's an amazing book. And his whole argument is that, and I think it's brilliant, is that if you look back over your last 10 years in business or whatever it might be, what, and you could, and you could remove the, the three biggest mistakes you made, not, not get more skills, not actually learn new stuff, not know what you know now then. Mm-hmm. So forget all that, just remove the three biggest mistakes you made, where would your business be today? And I think for most people, the answer is actually massively different in yeah. a great way. So it's not necessarily needing to know more. It's not necessarily needing to know more tactics and more actions. It's like making less mistakes. So think more. Right. You know, think about second order consequences. When you're going to do something, what's not, not just the actual result of the action, but what's the second order consequence? What's going to happen after that? And I think that was something that has been really interesting for me to kind of reflect on after reading Keith's book. So um, that was that, that's the advice I give is slow down, take more time to think and plan and have a trusted roadmap or blueprint that you can follow so you're not making shoot-from-the-hip decisions because that's when you're making bad mistakes. If you have a proven framework you can stick within, mm-hmm. you can be creative and strategic and tactical within the framework, but that, I think, can be super helpful. Well, I, I love the fact that you kind of unpacked it because as, as, as you first mentioned that, I thought, wow, wouldn't we all like to have, you know, kind of 2020 vision, you know, re- retrospectively, you know, beforehand. Yeah. But I, I like the fact that you kind of unpacked that a little bit and said, you know, it, maybe it's a little more forethought before the decision is made to mm. make less mistakes type thing. Because yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and it's something I'd never heard before until about three months ago when I read his book. It's just yeah. like the, the theory always was, oh, I wish I knew what I know now back then. That would have made my whole life different. But, well, yeah, maybe. But if you just actually made three less mistakes than you actually made, the three biggest mistakes yeah. you made, if they went away with because of foresight, and not, you know, not and the mistakes you could have prevented, that's sure. kind of the definition yeah. of mistake. And that was just such an impactful statement to hear. It's like, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, is that, isn't that true in life as well? Yeah, <laughs> I'd go back and and relive Ooh. those three biggest life mistakes too. That you know that that third Friday in South Beach <laughs> that was that was a bad mistake. <laughs> well, as we wrap it up here, I want to I want to touch uh, touch on your book just a, just a little bit and and uh, and then it. just ask you you know if there's anything else that, that you wanted to add to this, but yeah, um, in your book. When you talk about the seven cadence, uh, when you talk about the seven levers, so yep. do you also, and I don't have a copy of the book, so do you also have the um, kind of how to do this as well? Like, if you know, how do you figure 
the, the, yeah, the average cost of your I mean so that's included in the in the it's yeah, not just so, go find it it's here's kind of the process <laughs> for those that that may want to find it as well yeah, so the book's different. The, the book someone referred to it the other day is it's the business book for people who don't read business books because <laughs> it's, it's a parable. It's a story based on a yeah. true story. So it's not a, a, a traditional business book in the bland, dry, nonfiction sense. So it's the story of a bike store that was struggling to grow. And the bike store owner starts coaching some athletes uh, on the side for its income. Mm-hmm. And one of the athletes he coaches to his first Ironman triathlon is a business guy who kind of shows him the way with the seven levers. So the story goes through him discovering the seven levers and then going through what's termed the 6C process. That actually takes him through the process of actually clarifying what they are for him, calculating them, correcting the mistakes, and going through this process to actually implement that as well in his business. It's not just a, right. here the seven levers, good luck, go away. Yeah. He actually walks you through the process this bike store owner took to actually grow his business with this framework. Uh, and it's been yeah, it's been awesome. The, the response so far has been great. It's won a couple of international awards already, which mm. is just blows Even my mind. Even pre-launch, wow. Uh, yeah, which is in pre-launch, which I think apparently doesn't happen very often to get I, yeah, awards I mean, pre-launch. That was um, really really cool. It's almost counterintuitive. I mean, you know, <laughs> this is this yeah. would only be based on the, the maybe the audio book at this stage. Uh, well, also the the galley version. So with the um, you know the the pre-release galley version, the manuscript was sort of sent around to a few award programs, apparently, and um, yeah, it picked up awards, which is awesome. Well, fantastic. And and you you did mention that kind of off off camera that that uh, you're also maybe on a book tour as well. Not not yeah. too distant future. Yeah. So the book's out at the end of August. So I'm coming to the US and LA, New York, and also doing a conference in Vail. So I'll be. U.S. side for the launch with the U.S. publisher. So, uh, you know, we'll see how good the, pu- the publisher and the um, publicist are to see how uh, much of an impact they can help with the book. Well, hold the book up again and, and tell us you've uh, got a special offer for our listeners. Yeah, well, you know, I'm obviously trying to always do creative marketing things and do things a bit different. And um, one of the things I hate with books is that you hear an interview or you hear about a book that you want to buy that's maybe not available for a month or so. You either sort of go, yeah, I'll buy it when it comes out and forget about it. Yeah. Or that you have to buy it and you have to wait for the postman to actually come and take six weeks because of the publication date so far yeah. away. That used to frustrate me. <laughs> I'm, I'm one of those guys, if you can tell, I talk fast. I want to get stuff done. <laughs> um, so I spoke to the um, publisher about how can you make creative that actually rewards people for pre-ordering the book because that helps us from our marketing perspective for pre-orders. That's blatantly obvious. Yet also allows them to not have to wait. Right. So, uh, what we're doing is we're testing this with a few podcasts and obviously you guys love to test it with your audience is that if you pre-order the book, we'll actually give you access to the audio book today, wow. early, instantly before the actual book is released. So if you're a podcast listener, you probably prefer audio books anyway. Sure. And it means it's a thank you for helping us sort of you know pre-order the book and it's also gets you taking action straight away without having to wait. So we're, we've put up a couple of web pages for, to test this out. So we'd love your audience to help us test it, see if it works. It's something that I haven't really heard work before. So cadencebook.com forward slash rising tide. Cadencebook.com forward slash rising tide is where you can go. You can order the book, 25 bucks, just the you know, same RRP. And then within about two minutes of you placing that order, uh, you'll get an email link where you can download the app and the, the audio book and start listening to it and implementing it straight away, which is um, hopefully a lot of fun for everybody and uh, a good little test. Now, this is available in the in the U.S. Amazon store, I'm assuming. 
Yeah, absolutely. Great. So you can go and buy it on Amazon and all that sort of stuff. You just won't get the bonuses. So if you buy it through us directly, that's where we can oh, Okay, I'm glad you that. clarified so, that. I'm, I'm yeah. really glad you so, clarified that. Thanks. Yeah, so. go buy it on Amazon if you want. No problem at all. It helps us from a pre-sales perspective. But um, ordering it from us will actually trigger off all these automatic um, things. There's none, right. none of that sort of crap where you got to go buy the sense. book and email the receipt and all that sure. sort of rigmarole. Sure, sure. made it super easy. Cadencebook.com forward slash rising tide. Order forms there. One click order. basically one click order and email to you straight away and then yeah when the book comes out in august we'll send you the hardcover you can highlight it you can take notes into it you can pass on to a friend you can use it as a fire starter whatever you want to do um it is there for you to uh to to get rolling well as you as you unpack the seven levers it's it's more it's more than just a book i mean it it really is a a, an operations manual you know that yeah. you would continue to use. I mean, I'm, I was just thinking. You know, use case of this book is not just business owners; it's business coaches, it's consultants, it's yeah. professors. I mean, it's it's there's a whole gamut of people that would that could use this, even from a if if you work for a company, you know that that you were working on the supply mm-hmm. chain, you're working on you know the the marketing side of things or something. I mean, I can see that there's application, you know, broad application, you know, of this book. Yeah. So. But they will. Also, that link will be in the show notes as well. And appreciate uh, it. Thank but you. Pete, is there anything else that uh, I haven't touched on? I mean, I've, I've taken a lot of your time today, but man, I could talk to you all day. So I just, uh, <laughs> Look, I really appreciate it. We covered a lot. I think you know the big thing for people. I hopefully they've got from this is that you know find a blueprint or a framework, whether it's a seven levers or it's something else. You know, tactics are easy. You know, tactics are below the belt. The stuff that really makes a difference is in your head. It's the strategy. It's the framework that you actually can model because, you know, working out how do I get more email subscribers, you know, does a webinar work for me to sort of help sell or whatever it might be. They're tactics that have to sit within a business strategy. And if all you're doing is running from tactic to tactic, from, you know, idea to idea, you're probably finding that you're doing a lot of action, but it's not translating to achievement. And I think... Once you have a framework like the seven levers, again, it can be whatever you want it to be, but if you are using the seven levers, it's a great framework for seeing, does this tactic fit with my business? Where does it fit with my business? And how's it actually going to drive profit? Right. So one of the things you speak about in the book, Cadence, is using the seven levers not as a framework for action, but a filter of, okay, I've seen this sales page for a webinar tool. I've seen this thing about growing my Twitter following. Okay, well, hang on. Let's see how that tactic, that, that action, that tool, that silver bullet can work within my business framework mm-hmm. and where's it going to actually drive profits. If you can't figure out how that is going to increase one of the levers, it's going to be a distraction and it's not going to drive your profit. Yeah. I, I am so glad you touched on that. And, and it is, a, I mean, I've, I've read um, a lot of business books in my life and not all business books and not all tactics are created equally. I think Pete, you're you're being very self-deprecating there. That that's uh, all that, but because I mean the things you've touched on are are so fundamental to you know to virtually any business out there. So I really appreciate you taking the time today and expanding on that. And and we just want to kind of put the ball in the court of our listeners now and and go to cadencebook.com/risingtide and that's order it. the book. Uh, the link, like I said, will be on the on the page. But if you don't want to wait and you just want to, you're hearing this right now, just hit the pause button and go and and order the book right now. And audience, uh, this is your turn. It's your turn to uh, not only go out and buy the book, but also to speak into these these two pain points that were identified during the podcast and 
and uh, it's kind of the basic premise of of our podcast is is that we're we're wanting to have kind of this group think to speak into the pain points because at the end of the day the basic premise is all boats rise in a rising tide. Pete, thanks again Absolutely. for joining us today. I appreciate it. I appreciate it, man. It's great fun. Thanks for having me. I hope uh, everyone got some value and enjoyed the time. 